Hey there, this is Rich Cooper with the Space Foundation Space For You podcast, a podcast about the stories and the people who make today's space adventures possible. I'm joined today by the authors of a brand new book that is called Origins of 21st Century Space Travel. Those two authors are Dr. Glenn Asner, who is the Deputy Chief Historian for the Historical Office for the Office of the Secretary of Defense, and Stephen Garber, who works at the NASA History Office and is the Deputy Historian. Both of these gentlemen have worked together at NASA headquarters and have significant experience and cross-collaboration between NASA and the Pentagon and are both uh, esteemed and I would say rising historians uh, in the field of spaceflight and in space technology matters. Both of you have worked at your respective uh, agencies' history departments, both NASA and the Department of Defense. What do you do in your respective jobs to be historians there, and how do two agencies like NASA and the Pentagon work to capture that history? Uh, well, this is Glenn Asner, the Deputy Chief Historian in the OSD Historical Office. Our office covers a, a wide range of uh, subjects, and our two main f uh, areas of expertise are uh, providing assistance to senior leaders in the department and writing books. So we have uh, two major book series. One is on the history of the Secretaries of Defense. Another one is on the history of uh, defense acquisition. Uh, that's a series that I run myself. I've been doing so for about a decade. And it deals with weapon systems. And among the weapon systems are missiles and rockets. So we detail the, the history of uh, the development of those systems um, the office provides a lot of information papers to senior leaders. We do many oral history interviews, a, a variety of activities across the department, including uh, running a speaker series. So in terms of how the two agencies relate, uh, uh, in a lot of areas there's some there's sharing of personnel. Obviously a lot of astronauts come from the military. That's the first one, uh, or have in the past. And... Um, uh, their sharing of infrastructure and technology. Yeah. What about you, Steve? As far as the NASA History Office, what is your job here at NASA, and how do you guys work with the Pentagon in chronicling some of that history? Sure. This is Steve Garber from NASA. Our office has two main kinds of customers, internal and external. So like Glenn's customer, primary customer, we focus on answering questions from NASA leadership and managers. And in addition, we also respond to questions and of various kinds from people on the outside of the agency, people who are just interested in aerospace history overall. To get that done, we have a few different categories of things that we do. We, as I said, answer information requests. We have a fairly large archives. We also have a very large website. And we also, last but not least, are known for our NASA history series of publications. And this book is just one of many books that have been published over the years by our office. And as Glenn said, the two agencies, DOD and NASA, do cooperate a lot in developing space technology, sharing personnel, and many other things uh, in, in the space area because it does involve a lot of specialized technology and expertise. So tell me about the book, Origins of 21st Century Space Travel. What's the drive behind this? So we were approached, um, actually on the day 
I was approached the day before I started at NASA in 2004 by the chief historian who had been approached by a man named Harley Thronson, who was a member of what's called the Decadal Planning Team. And, and that is, a, a, the history of that is detailed in the book, and it's also in the title of the book, in the subtitle. Harley had asked Steve Dick if the NASA History Office would be interested in writing a history of this um, planning exercise. And um, Harley at the time explained that it was a critical, a critical input to the uh, process for developing the vision for space exploration. So Steve and I started writing the book, and we were simply writing a history of the decadal planning team. And wanted once we got into it, we really wanted to see, to test Harley's um, claim that, that this book, that this planning team led directly to the vision, or led in some fashion to the vision for space exploration. That required us to write many more chapters, do a lot more research, um, which explains why it, it took a little longer than we expected it to. Um, but in the end, I think we uh, did a, a full job um, explaining how the decadal planning team fit into uh, the larger uh, history of the vision for space exploration. So with a decadal planning team, a lot happens as part of that process. You've got a lot of people who are coming at this. But when they first started to ask you about doing this in 2004, a lot has happened since 2004, which to me begs the question, if you're, we're sitting here today at 2019, who are the biggest drivers for today's space travel? Is that civilian? Is that military? Is that commercial? Because you seem to have a lot more pressing needs for each of those constituencies today than you did 15 years ago. Who is that big driver today? I don't think you need to choose one. I think they're all incredibly important, um, each one of them. I don't, I don't know how you would divide it up in terms of saying which one uh, dominates, but uh, obviously military is extraordinarily and is, is going to become more and more important as, as we go forward. But uh, commercial space is, is becoming huge, but it also works very closely with the Defense Department and with civilian space. Yeah, I would just add that um, even though some people uh, like to talk about the so-called new space movement, and it is indeed burgeoning in the last 10, 15 years or so, uh, let's, let's say 10 years, Civil space hasn't hasn't taken a backseat in any way, and neither has national security space. So, so they're all critically important, and they're, they're, they all have their own sort of drivers for why they need space. So as Glenn said, I wouldn't feel the need to pick just one. Okay. Engineering and costs are certainly complex impediments to anything you go to do in space, but... What are the policy and political challenges to space travel that you chronicle in this work? Yeah. One of the main things that, uh, one of the main themes that comes out in the book is the desire for the people who are shaping the policy, the staff folks, as well as the higher level policymakers, this desire to send humans beyond a low Earth orbit, right? And so, this has been sort of a long-standing theme in space history. And what I would say is that uh, going beyond low Earth orbit is inherently challenging. There are technical challenges to doing that. And we know, 
at this point in time, we've had enough experience going into space that we know sort of the basic parameters of the challenges. We know the questions, but we don't know the answers yet, right? And so for, I'll give you a couple of examples. For, for example, radi radiation in space is deleterious to people's health, right? That you're, when you're above the Van Allen radiation belts, you're subject to a lot more radiation, and that increases the cancer risk for astronauts. So that's very concerning, right? So we know what the problem is, but we don't know exactly what type of shielding will be most appropriate or most cost-effective, right? So there, there are many other issues like this. One, I'll mention one other, which is that if you're going beyond a low-Earth orbit, one persistent theme is sending humans to Mars, right? And so if, you, if you're near Mars, you're far enough away from the Earth that even at the speed of light, you can't have real-time communications. So it's a totally different ball game than being um, in near-Earth space, like on the moon, right? So what this means is if you have a technical, if you're an astronaut on a mission to Mars, and you have a technical problem, which you're going to have, you can't call back to mission control and have them uh, troubleshoot the issue in real time. You have to be prepared to make changes on your own, right? So that's just one other issue that we know is there. It's one other challenge, but we don't know exactly what the answer is. All this by way of saying we know what the challenges are, we don't know what the answers are, and so we need a lot of, we need significant resources to commit to that. And that begs the question of well what's going to um, What's going to be the driver to commit significant resources? What's the political reason to have more resources? Glenn? So I, I would just say our system of government itself is, is an impediment to sustaining space plans over a long period of time. Um, you, you have change of administrations, and some of the changes that happen as you switch parties are kind of marginal or changes in name only but some of them are significant. And so with space policy over the long term, with any, any major program, something that takes 30, 40 years to do, um, every four years you hold your breath, or every two years you hold your breath, and, and hope that, that that next administration isn't gonna derail that whole entire project. And now, if it's, if it's one system, you know, one capsule or, or one launch vehicle, that's that's, I think, a little easier to sustain, but if it's a whole well-defined program, it's, it's got to have some level of flexibility uh, in its DNA to be able to, to sustain all the political wins. You have a section in, in your book that chronicles the Space Shuttle Columbia accident, which occurred in February of 2003. Did that accident have a bigger impact on the space community than the loss of Challenger in 1986? Well, I'm not sure about whether it's bigger or not, but it was certainly huge. And let me just tell you a little anecdote about this. When we interviewed Sean O'Keefe, who was the NASA administrator at the time of the Columbia accident, we interviewed him in the course of this book to find out his role on the vision for space exploration. We sat down and we were talking to him, and at one point, I think I sort of in retrospect, sort of foolishly said something, said something like, well, let's not talk too much about Columbia. I don't want to suck up all your time, sir, talking about Columbia. So, 
and he corrected me, and he said, well, Columbia is key to the story. Uh, we wouldn't have had the vision without the Columbia accident, unfortunately, or fortunately. And so we realized that the Columbia accident was really just a, a key part, a key driver that made the vision possible. There, sometimes people say, with tragedy comes opportunity, or with challenges come opportunity, right? And so some of the people who were involved in the um, shaping of the vision for space exploration certainly realized this, and were also cautious about appearing flip or opportunistic, um, about being op opportunistic after a, a tragedy like this. So they were aware of this, but there was also, it, it was a real key turning point for the agency as a whole. Stephen, you were here at NASA when the Columbia accident occurred, and so there certainly is the personal and professional memories that you have from that time. I wonder, as you were going through this book, and even as you were interviewing Sean O'Keefe, who was the administrator then, was there something new that stood out to you that you had not learned or had observed firsthand living through that experience? Well, I would just say that I do remember what it was like at the time. I remember um, speaking to somebody that day who I, an engineer that I had known for a while and respected a lot, who knew a lot about the shuttle, and he was explaining to me basically what happened. And all of a sudden, I felt like I was just caught up short in realizing how fragile the whole space transportation system, the shuttle was as a system that, um, you know, a piece of foam, a chunk of foam that weighed a little over a pound could doom a whole mission that way and bring down the shuttle and with it seven astronauts' lives. Um, I just hadn't really realized how literally and figuratively thin the skin of the shuttle, the orbiter itself was. All, all of a sudden I just realized, wow, Space is so contingent upon so many different things going right that it is really um, it is really risky. Glenn, you came into NASA shortly after Columbia. I'm curious on your observations as as a historian, sort of looking back on that. I mean, you certainly come into an organization that's just been through what was a trauma, but here you are coming into a place that's fresh off of that experience. When you look back, are there any things that leap out to you as to the Columbia and what occurred and how that changed space travel? So yeah, I, I came in right after, or, or in that period of time between the Columbia accident and the return to flight. My role here for the first couple of years was as a historian, but then I switched over for about a year and a half to be the executive secretary for the International Space Station program. And in, uh, in that role, I uh, got to participate in several space launches and could see, kind of had a, had a front row seat to how uh, meticulous and careful the leaders of the space flight program, particularly Bill Gerstenmeyer, was about how we were going to proceed with the space shuttle and with the space station. Um, just the really genius of the, the engineering leadership in this agency to return the shuttle to flight, to keep the space station going, and to also then later 
successfully go for several years without an accident um, and to retire the shuttle. That was, for me, a very important experience. There are a lot of different programs that are chronicled in the course of this book, and, and I'm curious, what are some of the biggest lessons that future space program leaders should take away from the programs that you chronicle? I mean, both of you have said you are available to the respective leaders of your agencies to provide them context and, and counsel on what was done before. What are some of the big lessons that those future space program leaders should take away? Well, I, I would just say that um, critical is to get rid of programs that might be standing in the way. So in order to have, to move beyond the shuttle gener the shuttle station generation of space flight, you had to end shuttle flights you, to get beyond low Earth orbit and to start planning for planetary, human planetary exploration. You had to get rid of or go beyond what was there and figure out how you were going to do that. That's a pretty big deal. Um, I, I would say also don't discount the importance of mid-level people in the policy process and in developing plans. They're critical. They can take a little more time than the senior leaders, and they can queue up um, big decisions in a way uh, that, that really can take advantage of their skills. What are some of the lessons that never seem to be learned? There's always a couple things that, gee, we keep... Uh, encountering the same type of problem, but people keep seem to making the same mistake time and time again. What are what are some of those things that you you found? Right, I would say there has to be a truly compelling underlying rationale to do big things in space, especially uh, with regards to human spaceflight. And sending people beyond a low Earth orbit is an example of that. So, those of us who work in the space community all basically feel that space is cool, and many other people do as well, but that's not enough. We really need an underlying compelling rationale to, uh, to generate the overall public support and thus the overall resources. Another thing that people never seem to quite understand um, might be that uh, presidential leadership is necessary but insufficient. And there's a whole book that was written on this um, before even the vision for space exploration um, was announced but by two esteemed historians, Roger Alanius and Howard McCurdy. But this is something that um, I used to hear frequently in the halls of NASA that uh, before the vision for space exploration, all we need is a president like John Kennedy to stand up and throw his support behind NASA and then everything will be hunky-dory. After that, after the vision, I didn't hear that so much, so perhaps people have learned, but it, it's a fundamental truth that there has to be an underlying, really compelling rationale that everybody can get behind. So, for example, in, in the 60s, it was the Cold War, right? That was the underlying rationale that generated the space race. There's not quite something comparable right now. Politics and budgets have always played a role in space decisions. What were some of the observations that stand out to you in the past 20 or so years? Are the politics and budget fights getting harder? 
I'm not sure that they're getting harder. The issues have always existed. And I do think that what a lot of people say is true, that space is a bipartisan issue. I think what we might be seeing in the last X number of years is sort of a broader political issue, which is that it's hard for the Congress to pass long-term budgets, um, let alone uh, for even a year. We tend to devolve into continuing resolutions, and that makes planning for long-term ventures like space exploration really difficult. Uh, So, for example, in other nations, they have a longer-term budgeting process like the in Europe, the EU has five-year budgets, I believe, and so they, they can sort of um, plan ahead a little bit more than we can. Historians <laughs> are, in many ways, forensic scientists and taking a look about w- decisions that were made, events that occurred, uh, actions like that. When you take a look at looking at the vision for space exploration, which is a central tenet within your book, what prevented the vision for space exploration from being more successful? Well, I think some of the areas where, in my opinion, it, it falls short are those that were, were there at the, at the beginning, which is not enough funding. President didn't approve a large enough budget for the first five years, and then even beyond that, the funding was always uh, far too limited. And then um, the I think the retirement of the shuttle without a, a space vehicle afterwards was a significant flaw as well that needs to, to be mentioned. Um, it, it is uh, for the United States to be dependent on Russia for at least nine years to get to the space station has, I think, undercut us both internationally and in space. The rise of new space commercial leaders like your SpaceX's, your Blue Origins, your Virgin Galactics, OneWebs, and others has brought a lot of change to what has always been a very challenging environment. What did you find about them in the course of, or observe about them as you were looking at the history of vision for space exploration, the post-Columbia era? How are they changing the way NASA and the Defense Department engage space? So commercialization was in, in its early years, I mean, it, we've always had contractors building systems for NASA, but commercialization as we know it now was in its it was really uh, infancy at that time. There was only one proposal out of all the ones considered in the NSC policymaking process that involved commercial space. And so um, it, it really wasn't there, but now, I mean, we're obviously going through this tremendous revolution where we've got uh, significant innovations in, in how we are taking supplies to the space station and, and other space launch technology. So I think going forward, I think going forward, it's um, just going to grow more. Yeah. The other thing to keep in mind is that a lot of these so-called new space companies really came to prominence after the vision for space exploration was unveiled in 2004. So SpaceX and Blue Origin, a lot of those companies really became bigger deals um, in more recent memory. Um, I would still argue, though, that even though they've, they are revolutionizing space, 
that the federal government does have many essential roles in space, such as doing human exploration still, um, national security, regulation of debris, space traffic management. There are many different critical functions that the federal government still needs to be involved in. So it, um, even though it's a big change, the federal government is not getting out of space in any way. We're in the midst of celebrating the 50th anniversaries of some of the Apollo era's greatest accomplishments. And I'm curious, as, as two historians that I've got sitting here with me, I'm curious if you could interview any of the notable space leaders from that time, who would you want to question and what would you be asking them? Well, this is Steve again. It's funny, um, when I first started in the history division many years ago, one of the first projects I had was to work with a guy named Robert Siemens, Bob Siemens, who's the NASA, NASA Deputy Administrator for much of the 60s during the Apollo program. He was working on his memoir, and uh, my job was to sort of edit it and shepherd it through the publication process. So I got to know him at least a little bit and talk with him over time. But at the time, to be frank, I was kind of young, and I didn't really... <laughs> think to ask him a lot of good questions like you're proposing now. What came across, though, was his sort of emphasis on teamwork and letting people, letting technical people do their jobs as much as possible. He, I think he viewed himself as sort of an overall manager. Um, he, at the time, his, his job was to sort of coordinate the inner workings of NASA. And and so there's a lot that can be said about cooperation and teamwork, especially for such a big venture as Apollo. But in retrospect, I wish I had asked him more specific questions. Glenn? Well, I had the opportunity while I was here to work closely with uh, two astronauts from the Apollo era. That was uh, General Tom Stafford and uh, Joe Engel. And uh, I'd never bother to do an oral history interview with them, although I know there are, there are several, and I never spent as much time asking them about their past as, as I wish I had. I did, I did have many good conversations, and they have just so many funny stories that I don't think have been captured in the historical record. That alone would be just a blast to, to get down on paper. Yeah, a book of an anecdotes by any one of those people. Yeah, uh, even the managers across the board about uh, would be you know, a, a great read. It would be a great read. I'd like to say one other thing, which is I, I do think um, it's the, this 50 an 50th anniversary has been a fat, fantastic time to go back and, and look at the Apollo error, but I think we need to do a lot more history on the shuttle error and on the space station period and, and this period going forward since uh, the vision for space exploration, which I think is a different era. Well, Skylab is another one of those. So we'll yes. have a number of 50th, we'll have 50th anniversaries coming up, and it is certainly, I think, an underappreciated and a underrecognized accomplishment for what went on there as well. Uh, so, so let me ask: um, You guys have looked at vision for space exploration. You've talked to a number of people. What advice do you think? the people who were involved with the vision for space exploration, and, and even the Apollo era, uh, what advice do you think they would be giving to leaders today as NASA aspires to get back to the moon by 2024? 
Well, I would say is you have to show progress. I mean, I think that's critical, and that's something Steve Isakowitz and Gil Klinger, who are featured prominently in the book, um, would would probably bring up. Um, you can't have a 30-year plan and, and not reach any milestones in that time period. You have to have some incremental goals that you achieve, and, and you have to let the public and the people who are paying the money know. Yeah, I, would, I think that's really critical um, because space exploration is such a long-term venture that you have to have something, you have to have near-term goals as well, just as Glenn said. I would also just add that the importance of teamwork and potentially now the importance of international collaboration, just like with the International Space Station, um, some people might argue that uh, one of the main uh, triumphs of the space station is the international collaboration, even more so than the actual technical feat of building that in space. This book is not your first effort together. What else have you two worked on? Well, we worked together in the NASA History Office for uh, over two years, and um, during that time we, we worked on a lot of small projects in the office. And one thing uh, we, one of the, the things we were involved in was a conference on the societal impact of spaceflight, and uh, we both kind of helped shape the program for that conference, and I wrote a paper uh, for that, that uh, book that Steve Dick and Roger Lani has published. When you guys finish this book, and you shut down your laptop, you stepped away from it, what was the first thing that really stuck out to you the most in the history that you reviewed and shared in this book? Well, I think people really misunderstand what the, the seminal achievement of the vision for space exploration was. I think everyone sees it as a program that died in the next administration, but really what it did was it cleared the way for a, a new era of spaceflight. And for me, that, that's the critical message from this, this book. Yeah, and to be more specific, sometimes Glenn and I have talked about, and Glenn's mentioned the idea that this was like a third paradigm, if you will, of space flight, uh, specifically human space flight. So you had the Apollo era, and you had the shuttle era of going to the moon and having routine, relatively routine access to, to low Earth orbit. But this is different. This is trying to send humans beyond low Earth orbit, and that's inherently challenging. So this was trying to set set the way, pave a path for that third paradigm of sending humans beyond Earth, low Earth orbit and onto Mars. The book is called Origins of 21st Century Space Travel. Where can people get this book? It is available for free download from nasa.gov under the ebook section. So just go to www.nasa.gov, search for ebooks, and the link will come right up from there. Any other future projects you guys can share with us? I, th I think there are a lot of really uh, good studies that can be written about the last 20 years of space flight, and I hope the NASA History Office has a big role in producing those. Great. Glenn Asner, Stephen Garber, thank you both for your time. The book is called Origins of 21st Century Space Travel, a history of NASA's decadal planning team and the vision for space exploration 
1999 to 2004. It's written by Glenn Asner and Stephen Garber. You can pick that book up for free, which is always in our budgets. Uh, you can pick that up for free by going to the NASA.gov website and searching under ebooks. Again, Origins of 21st Century Space Travel, a history of NASA's decadal planning team and the vision for space exploration, 1999 to 2004. Steve and Glenn, thank you both for your time uh, and joining the Space for You podcast. This is Rich Cooper with the Space Foundation. Please pay uh, close attention to what's going on with the Space Foundation via our website at spacefoundation.org, as well as all of our social media properties at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Because remember, at the Space Foundation, we always have space for you. Thank you.